Chapter Four of the Spoilers by Rex Beach. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Four, The Killing. For four days the Santa Maria felt blindly through the white fields, drifting north with the spring tide that sets through Bering Strait, till on the morning of the fifth, open water showed to the east. Creeping through she broke out into the last stage of the long race amid the cheers of her weary passengers, and the dull jar of her engines made welcome music to the girl in the deck stateroom. Soon they picked up a mountainous coast which rose steadily into the majestic barren ranges, still white with the melting snows, and at ten in the evening under a golden sunset amid screaming whistles they anchored in the roadstead of Nome. Before the rumble of her chains had ceased or the echo from the fleet salute had died from the shoreward hills, the ship was surrounded by a swarm of tiny craft clamoring about her iron sides, while an officer in cap and gilt climbed the bridge and greeted Captain Stevens. Tugs with trailing lighters circled discreetly about, awaiting the completion of certain formalities. These over, the uniformed gentleman dropped back into his skiff and rowed away. "'A clean bill of health, Captain,' he shouted, saluting the commander. "'Thank ye, sir,' roared the sailor, and with that the rowboats swarmed inward pirate-like, boarding the steamer from all quarters. As the master turned he looked down from his bridge to the deck below, full into the face of Dextry, who had been an intent witness of the meeting. With unbending dignity Captain Stevens let his left eyelid droop slowly while a boyish grin spread widely over his face. Simultaneously orders rang sharp and fast from the bridge, the crew broke into feverish life, the creak of booms and the clank of donkey hoists arose. "'We're here, Miss Stowaway,' said Glenister, entering the girl's cabin. "'The inspector passed us, and it's time for you to see the magic city. Come, it's a wonderful sight.' This was the first time they had been alone since the scene on the afterdeck, for besides ignoring Glenister she had managed that he should not even see her except in Dextry's presence. Although he had ever since been courteous and considerate, she felt the leaping emotions that were hidden within him and longed to leave the ship, to fly from the spell of his personality. Thoughts of him made her writhe, and yet when he was near she could not hate him as she willed. He overpowered her. He would not be hated. He paid no heed to her slights. This very quality reminded her how willingly and unquestioningly he had fought off the sailors from the Ohio at a word from her. She knew he would do so again, and more, and it is hard to be bitter to one who would lay down his life for you, even though he has offended, particularly when he has the magnetism that sweeps you away from your moorings. "'There's no danger of being seen,' he continued. "'The crowd's crazy, and besides we'll go ashore right away. You must be mad with the confinement. It's on my nerves, too.' As they stepped outside, the door of an adjacent cabin opened, framing an angular sharp-featured woman who, catching sight of the girl emerging from Glenister's stateroom, paused with shrewdly narrowed eyes, flashing quick malicious glances from one to the other. They came later to remember with regret this chance encounter, for it was fraught with grave results for them both. "'Good evening, Mr. Glenister,' the lady said with acid cordiality. "'Howdy, Mrs. Champion?' He moved away. She followed a step, staring at Helen. 
Are you going ashore tonight or wait for morning? Don't know yet, I'm sure. Then aside to the girl he muttered, Shaker, she's spying on us. Who is she? asked Miss Chester a moment later. Her husband manages one of the big companies. She's an old cat. Gaining her first view of the land, the girl cried out sharply. They rode on an oily sea, tinted like burnished copper, while on all sides, amid the faint rattle and rumble of machinery, scores of ships were belching cargoes out upon living swarms of scows, tugs, stern-wheelers, and dories. Here and there Eskimo umiaks, fat walrus-hide boats, slid about like huge, many-legged water-bugs. An endless ant-like stream of tenders, piled high with freight, plied to and from the shore. A mile distant lay the city, stretched like a white ribbon between the gold of the ocean sand and the dun of the moss-covered tundra. It was like no other in the world. At first glance it seemed all made of new white canvas. In a week its population had swelled from three to thirty thousand. It now wandered in a slender, sinuous line along the coast for miles, because only the beach afforded dry camping ground. Mounting to the bank behind, one sank knee-deep in moss and water, and, treading twice in the same tracks, found a bog of oozing icy mud. Therefore, as the town doubled daily in size, it grew endwise like a string of dominoes, till the shore from Cape Nome to Penny River was a long reach of white glinting in the low rays of the Arctic sunset like foamy breakers on a tropic island. "'That's Anvil Creek up yonder,' said Glenester. "'That's where the Midas lies. See?' He indicated a gap in the buttress of mountains rolling back from the coast. "'It's the greatest creek in the world. You'll see gold by the mule-load, and hillocks of nuggets. Oh, I'm glad to get back. This is life. That stretch of beach is full of gold. These hills are seamed with quartz.' The bedrock of that creek is yellow. There's gold, gold, gold everywhere, more than ever was in old Solomon's mines, and there's mystery and peril and things unknown. "'Let us make haste,' said the girl. "'I have something I must do to-night. After that I can learn to know these things.' Securing a small boat, they were rowed ashores, the partners plying their ferrymen with eager questions. Having arrived five days before, he was exploding with information and volunteered the fruits of his ripe experience till Dextry stated that they were Sardos themselves, and owned the Midas, whereupon Miss Chester marveled at the awe which sat upon the man and the wandering stare with which he devoured the partners to her own utter exclusion. "'Sufferin' cats! Look at the freight!' ejaculated Dextry. "'If a storm come up it would bust the community.' The beach they neared was walled and crowded to the high tide-mark with ramparts of merchandise, while every incoming craft deposited its quota upon whatever vacant foot was close at hand, till bales, boxes, boilers, and baggage of all kinds were confusedly intermixed in the narrow space. Singing longshoremen trundled burdens from the lighters and piled them on the heap, while yelling, cursing crowds fought over it all, selecting, sorting, loading. There was no room for more, yet hourly they added to the mass. Teams splashed through the lapping surf, or stuck in the deep sand between hillocks of goods. All was noise, profanity, congestion, and feverish hurry. This burning haste rang in the voice of the multitude, showed in its violence of gesture and redness of face, permeated the atmosphere with a magnetic, electrifying energy. "'It's something fierce ashore,' said the oarsman. 
I've been up for three days and nights steady. There ain't no room, nor time, nor darkness to sleep in. Ham and eggs is a dollar and a half, and whiskey's four bits a throw. He wailed the last, sadly, as a complaint, unspeakable. "'Any trouble doin?' inquired the old man. "'You know it,' the other cried colloquially. "'There was a massacre in the northern last night. Gamblin' row?' "'Yep. Tinhorn called Mizzou done it.' "'Sure,' said Dextry. "'I know him. He's a bad actor.' All three men nodded sagely, and the girl wished for further light, but they volunteered no explanation. Leaving the skiff, they plunged into turmoil. Dodging through the tangle, they came out into fenced lots where tents stood wall to wall, and every inch was occupied. Here and there was a vacant spot guarded jealously by its owner, who gazed sourly upon all men with the forbidding eye of suspicion. Finding an eddy in the confusion, the men stopped. "'Where do you want to go?' they asked Miss Chester. There was no longer in Glenister's glance that freedom with which he had come to regard the women of the North. He had come to realize, dully, that here was a girl driven by some strong purpose into a position repellent to her. In a man of his type her independence awoke only admiration and her coldness served but to inflame him the more. Delicacy in Glenister was lost in a remarkable singleness of purpose. He could laugh at her loathing, smile under her abuse, and remain utterly ignorant that anything more than his action in seizing her that night lay at the bottom of her dislike. He did not dream that he possessed characteristics abhorrent to her, and he felt a keen reluctance at parting. She extended both hands. "'I can never thank you enough for what you have done, you two, but I shall try. Good-bye.' Dextry gazed doubtfully at his own hand, rough and gnarly, then, taking hers as he would have handled a robin's egg, waggled it limply. "'We ain't going to turn you adrift this away. Whatever your destination is, we'll see you to it.' "'I can find my friends,' she assured him. "'This is the wrong latitude in which to dispute a lady. But, knowing this camp from soup to nuts, as I do, I suggest a male escort.' "'Very well.' I wish to find Mr. Strew of Dunham and Strew lawyers. I'll take you to their offices, said Glenister. You see to the baggage decks. Meet me at the second class in half an hour, and we'll run out to the Midas. They pushed through the tangle of tents, past piles of lumber, and emerged upon the main thoroughfare which ran parallel to the shore. Nome consisted of one narrow street, twisted between solid rows of canvas and half-erected frame buildings, its every other door that of a saloon. There were fair-looking blocks which aspired to the dizzying height of three stories, some sheathed in corrugated iron, others gleaming and galvanized. Lawyers' signs, doctors, surveyors were in the upper windows. The street was thronged with men from every land. Helen Chester heard more dialects than she could count. Laplanders in quaint three-cornered padded caps idled past. Men with the tan of the tropics rubbed elbows with yellow-haired Norsemen, and near her a carefully groomed Frenchman with riding breeches and monocle was in pantomime with a skin-clad Eskimo. To her left was the sparkling sea, alive with ships of every class. To her right towered timberless mountains, unpeopled, unexplored, forbidding and desolate, their hollows inlaid with snow. On one hand were the life and the world she knew, on the other silence, mystery, 
possible adventure. The roadway where she stood was a crush of sundry vehicles from bicycles to dog-hauled water-carts, and on all sides men were laboring busily the echoes of hammers mingling with the cries of teamsters and the tinkle of music within the saloons. "'And this is midnight!' exclaimed Helen breathlessly. "'Do they ever rest?' "'There isn't time. This is a gold stampede. You haven't caught the spirit of it yet.' They climbed the stairs in a huge iron-sheeted building to the office of Dunham. "'Anybody else here besides you?' asked her escort of the lawyer. "'No, I'm running the law business unassisted. Don't need any help. Dunham's in Washington, D.C., the land of the home, the free of the brave. What can I do for you?' He made to cross the threshold hospitably, but tripped, plunged forward, and would have rolled down the stairs had not Glen Esther gathered him up and borne him back into the office, where he tossed him upon a bed in a rear room. "'Now what, Miss Chester?' asked the young man, returning. "'Isn't that dreadful?' she shuddered. "'Oh, and I must see him to-night,' she stamped impatiently. "'I must see him alone.' "'No, you mustn't,' said Glenister, with equal decision. "'In the first place he wouldn't know what you were talking about, and in the second place I know Struve. He's too drunk to talk business, and too sober to, well, to see you alone.' "'But I must see him,' she insisted. "'It's what brought me here. You don't understand.' "'I understand more than he could. He's in no condition to act on any important matter. You come around to-morrow when he's sober.' "'It means so much,' breathed the girl. "'The beast!' Glenister noted that she had not wrung her hands nor even hinted at tears, though plainly her disappointment and anxiety were consuming her. "'Well, I suppose I'll have to wait, but I don't know where to go. Some hotel, I suppose.' "'There aren't any. They're building, too, but tonight you couldn't hire a room in Nome for money. I was about to say love or money. Have you no other friends here, no women? Then you must let me find a place for you. I have a friend whose wife will take you in.' She rebelled at this. Was she never to have done with this man's favors? She thought of returning to the ship, but dismissed that. She undertook to decline his aid, but he was halfway down the stairs and paid no attention to her beginning. So she followed him. It was then that Helen Chester witnessed her first tragedy of the frontier, and through it came to know better the man whom she disliked and with whom she had been thrown so fatefully. Already she had thrilled at the spell of this country, but she had not learned that strength and license carry blood and violence as corollaries. Emerging from the doorway at the foot of the stairs, they drifted slowly along the walk, watching the crowd. Besides the universal tension there were laughter and hope and exhilaration in the faces. The enthusiasm of this boyish multitude warmed one. The girl wished to get into this spirit, to be one of them. Then suddenly from the battle at their elbows came a discordant note, not long nor loud, only a few words, penetrating and harsh with a metallic quality lent by passion. Helen glanced over her shoulder to find that the smiles of the throng were gone, and that its eyes were bent on some scene in the street with an eager interest she had never seen mirrored before. Simultaneously Glenister spoke. Come away from here. With a quickened eye of experience, he foresaw trouble and tried to drag her on, but she shook off his grasp impatiently, and, turning, gazed absorbed at the spectacle which unfolded itself before her. Although not comprehending the play of events, she felt vaguely the quick approach of some crisis, 
yet was unprepared for the swiftness with which it came. Her eyes had leaped to the figures of two men in the street from whom the rest had separated like oil from water. One was slim and well-dressed, the other bulky, mackinawed, and lowering of feature. It was the smaller who spoke, and for a moment she misjudged his bloodshot eyes and swaying carriage to be the result of alcohol, until she saw that he was racked with fury. "'Make good, I tell you, quick! Give me that bill of sale, you!' The unkept man swung on his heel with a growl and walked away, his course leading him towards Glenister and the girl. With two strides he was abreast of them. Then, detecting the flashing movement of the other, he whirled like a wild animal. His voice had the snarl of a beast in it. "'Ye had to have it, didn't ye? Well, there!' The actions of both men were quick as light, yet to the girl's taut senses they seemed theatrical and deliberate. Into her mind was seared forever the memory of that second, as though the shutter of a camera had snapped, impressing upon her brain the scene, sharp, clear-cut, and vivid. The shaggy back of the large man almost brushing her, the raged, drunken, white-shirted man in the derby hat, the crowd sweeping backward like rushes before a blast, men with arms flexed and feet raised in flight, the glaring yellow sign of the gold-belt dance-hall across the way. These were stamped upon her retina, and then she was jerked violently backward. Two strong arms crushed her down upon her knees against the wall, and she was smothered in the arms of Roy Glenister. "'My God, don't move! We're in line!' He crouched over her, his cheek against her hair, his weight forcing her down into the smallest compass, his arms about her, his body forming a living shield against the flying bullets. Over them the big man stood, and the sustained roar of his gun was deafening. In an instant they heard the thud and felt the jar of lead in the thin boards against which they were huddled. Again the report echoed above their heads, and they saw the slender man in the street drop his weapon and spin half round as though hit with some heavy hand. He uttered a cry, and stooping for his gun, plunged forward burying his face in the sand. The man by Glenister's side shouted curses thickly and walked towards his prostrate enemy, firing at every step. The wounded man rolled to his side, and, raising himself on his elbow, shot twice so rapidly that the reports blended, but without checking his antagonist's approach. Four more times the relentless assailant fired deliberately, his last missile sent as he stood over the body which twitched and shuddered at his feet its garments muddy and smeared. Then he turned and retraced his steps. Back within arm's length of the two who pressed against the building he came, and as he went by they saw his coarse and sullen features drawn and working pallidly, while the breath whistled through his teeth. He turned his course to the door they had just quitted, then as he turned he coughed bestially, spitting out a mouthful of blood. His knees wavered. He vanished within the portals, and, in the sickly silence that fell, they heard his hobnailed boots clumping slowly up the stairs. Noise awoke and rioted down the thoroughfare. Men rushed forth from every quarter, and the ghastly object in the dirt was hidden by a seething mass of miners. Glenister raised the girl, but her head rolled limply, and she would have slipped to her knees again had he not placed his arm about her waist. Her eyes were staring and horror-filled. Don't be frightened, he said, smiling at her reassuredly. But his own lips shook and the sweat stood out like dew on him, for they had both 
been close to death. There came a surge and swirl through the crowd, and Dextry swooped upon them like a hawk. "'Be ye hurt! Holy Mackinaw! When I seen em blaze away, I yells at ye fit to bust my throat. I sure thought you was gone, although I can't say but this killin' was a sight for sore eyes, so neat and genteel. Still, as a rule, in these street brawls, it's the innocuous bystander that has flowers sent around to his house afterwards. Look at this, said Glenester. Breast high in the wall against which they had crouched, not three feet apart, were bullet holes. Them's the first two we unhitched, Dextry remarked, jerking his head towards the object in the street. Must have been a new gun, and pulled hard, throwed him to the right. See? Even to the girl it was patent that, had she not been snatched as she was, the bullet would have found her. "'Come away, quick!' she panted, and they led her into a nearby store, where she sat upon a seat and trembled until Dextry brought her a glass of whiskey. "'Here, miss,' he said. "'Pretty tough go for a chichaco. I'm afraid you ain't getting enamored of this here country a whole lot.' For half an hour he talked to her, in his whimsical way, of foreign things, till she was quieted. Then the partners arose to go. Although Glenister had arranged for her to stop with the wife of the merchant for the rest of the night, she would not. "'I can't go to bed. Please don't leave me. I'm too nervous. I'll go mad if you do. The strain of the last week has been too much for me. If I sleep I'll see the faces of those men again.' Dextry talked with his companion, then made a purchase which he laid at the lady's feet. "'Here's a pair of half-grown gumboots. You put them on and come with us.' We'll take your mind off things complete, and as for sweet dreams, when you get back you'll make the slumbers of the just seem as restless as a riot, or the antics of a mountain goat which nimbly leaps from crag to crag, and, well, that's restless enough. Come on. As the sun slanted up out of Bering Sea, they marched back towards the hills, their feet ankle-deep in the soft, fresh moss, while the air tasted like a cool draught, and a myriad of earthy odors rose up and encircled them. Snipe and reed-birds were noisy in the hollows, and from the misty tundra lakes came the honking of brant. After their weary weeks on shipboard the dewy freshness livened them magically, cleansing from their memories the recent tragedy, so that the girl became herself again. "'Where are we going?' she asked, at the end of an hour, pausing for breath. "'Why, to the Midas, of course,' they said, and one of them vowed recklessly as he drank in the beauty of her clear eyes and the grace of her slender panting form, that he would gladly give his share of all its riches to undo what he had done one night on the Santa Maria. End of chapter 4 Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com